investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, investors, to episode 11 of the Absolute Return podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kesshorn. Today is April 26, 2019. We've got a lot of cool things to chat about today on the podcast. Starting off, Microsoft market cap touches $1 trillion as Q1 results beat expectations. What drove the increase in value? Occidental announces a hostile bid for Anadarko, setting the stage for a bidding war with Chevron. What happens next? The Bank of Canada holds rates steady. What's their next move? US Q1 GDP figures beat estimates. What do the numbers mean? And finally, the private equity mirage. How to replicate private equity with liquid public securities. Starting things off, Microsoft market cap touches $1 trillion off of strong first quarter results. Now, Microsoft is the third company after Apple and Amazon to reach the $1 trillion milestone. Talking about Microsoft's Q1 results, their profits climbed 19%, which handily topped analyst estimates. The stock was up as much as 5% on the release of the results. I wanted to drill down on some specific numbers out of their quarter. And it shows you even as a trillion dollar market cap company, it can still grow like crazy. Microsoft has a number of divisions that I wanted to highlight. The first one being Azure, their cloud computing platform, year over year revenue growth of 75% is just astounding. Incredibly good numbers out of that division. Office 365 commercial did 31%. LinkedIn, a recent acquisition, did 29% year-over-year sales growth. Windows commercial doing 20%. Surface doing 25%. So when people talk about the law of large numbers, it really doesn't seem to apply. You got Microsoft that just keeps growing like a weed. Not just that, but incredibly profitable too. What are your thoughts on the stock? Yeah, I just wanted to touch on the thesis, which is, so part of the thesis is that we're in the early stages of a global enterprise transformation as companies move to the cloud, where Microsoft and Amazon are the dominant players and Google a distant third. And really what this touches on is their hybrid cloud business, meaning that they have the combination of on-premise and then the public cloud infrastructure. And this is kind of the, this combination is the key differentiator between Google and themselves, where AWS is also able to compete on this basis through the partnership with VMware. Yeah, by AWS, you mean Amazon's Amazon Web Services. Yes, yes. Um, So really, like this business model is just Azure renting out computing power to business clients. Um, So this is what the majority of the thesis has rested on. Yeah. And the main rationale for such a high multiple re-rating for Microsoft over the last number of years. Yeah, and I wanted to get into that because back in 2011, Microsoft was really beaten down. It was trading at, I believe, 8.3 times earnings is where the valuation troughed. And even by 2013, it was still around 10 times earnings, which was a big discount uh, to the S&P 500. Going back to 2013, Activist Hedge Fund Value Act Capital took a $2 billion stake, which at the time was about 1% of Microsoft. The stock was $31 at the time, which is, I believe it's uh, around $130 since. 
like I said, roughly 10 times earnings in 2013. And what Value Act did is they were instrumental in getting Satya Nadella, Microsoft's current CEO, in that position from longtime CEO Steve, Steve Ballmer, who had been there for 13 years at the time, and the stock had been was lower than where it was 11 years ago. And ever since uh, Satya Nadella came in, the stock's has taken off. Not only has it gone from 30 to 130, that wasn't all on earnings growth, although quite a bit of it was, but the multiple re-rated, i.e. sentiment changed on the stock such that the valuation went from 10 times earnings to 30 times earnings where it sits now. So a discount to the market to a fairly sizable premium, which is a very interesting dynamic in my opinion. Absolutely. And it just goes to show that it's yes, like execution is the most important aspect um, of running a company. But one of the other things that you can't really necessarily control is the sentiment that the market has. And that has a big effect on what, what multiple they'll give you. Yeah. And what the market was really most impressed with and why it led to that re-rating was Nadella's focus on cloud computing and the subscription-based business instead of selling individual copy of Windows for a fee. Now with the cloud computing and the subscription-based software services, they get that recurring revenue, which investors clearly value at a much higher multiple. Absolutely. And when you talk to people in the IT services industry, it is very clear that Microsoft is the best option just because of the ability to have the legacy model for companies with their current infrastructure and combine that with the cloud. It's not just moving, say, with Google, moving all, all the way to the cloud. It's that kind of combination that is a lot easier to sell. Anadarko shareholders got to be happy as Occidental unexpectedly launches a 55 billion hostile bid for Anadarko, setting the stage for bidding war with Chevron. As we previously discussed on this podcast, Chevron had struck a friendly deal to acquire Anadarko. And in only a couple of weeks, uh, Occidental came in, and, and I don't hear that Occidental has a $53 billion enterprise value. They launched a $55 billion hostile takeover for Anadarko. And so they're trying to take over a company that's slightly larger to them, which is, uh, it doesn't happen too often. Net result, Anadarko shares were up 12% on the news. And if you look at the competitive dynamics here, Occidental is going up against an absolute giant in Chevron. Chevron's worth almost $250 billion in enterprise value. So the market is really expecting pretty heated takeover bid here. Getting into some details here, the Occidental bid is at 76 bucks per share, 50% cash. And as far as I know, they have committed financing on the cash portion of that bid through a bridge loan, in addition to other strategies that you that they're using versus Chevron's bid at $65 per share. So it's 76 versus 65. And Chevron's bid is only 25% cash. As we, as we have previously, previously talked about, in terms of takeover dynamics, cash is always king. And typically you want to put up as much cash as possible and as little as possible in terms of share consideration. One thing that came clear out of this bid is that Occidental made it clear that Anadarko's highly attractive US shale assets, that's really the key thing that both parties are looking for here. I believe Occidental is the number one producer in the Permian and Anadarko's the second largest 
producer in the Permian Basin. The Permian Basin is perhaps one of the hottest uh, shale oil plays in the world today, certainly the hottest play in North America. Comparing the bids, Occidental's bid is at a 22% premium to Chevron, fairly sizable. And what happened prior to them going public with a letter and this public offer to Anadarko shareholders is Anadarko actually spurned two offers from Occidental earlier this month and just went for Chevron's lower bid. And they blamed it on thinking that the Chevron bid was much more likely to succeed. Got a quote here from Occidental CEO Vicky Holub saying, we are the best performer in the Permian Basin and we have the ability to execute on this development better than anyone else. So there you have it. That's kind of what uh, Occidental is thinking. That's their strategy here. It's really to get their hands on Anadarko's Permian Basin assets. I believe they want to sell 10 to 15 billion in assets once they close this deal. And that's their strategy. What are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, first off, Anadarko did say that they would prefer the Chevron bid uh, because of their ability to absorb the company in, in its full form. Whereas with Occidental, they are likely to have a substantial amount of asset sales as this new combined entity would be quite leveraged, perhaps a little bit more than what they would like. The capital structure may be a little bit different. But yeah, moving to there would be a $1 billion, So I guess at its base, there would be a $1 billion breakup fee payable to Chevron if Anadarko chose Occidental, um, if they reneged on the on the agreement that they had. But as well, there's some interesting dynamics in terms of corporate governance with Anadarko, their CEO, he's actually set to receive $43 million as kind of a, a golden parachute of sorts following the acquisition, acquisition of Chevron, by Chevron. And this number was actually increased the day before the merger with Chevron was announced. And so I, f- I find that kind of interesting that they would do, typically you wouldn't do that um, right before a merger announcement. That would be, you know, months or years ahead. Uh, but the other interesting aspect is that their CEO has actually made about $130 million since becoming CEO in 2012, where Anadarko's total return in that time frame has been 3%. Um, that's including dividends which is much lower in comparison to their peer comps, including EOG, ConocoPhillips, Occidental Petroleum itself, uh, where they have returned about 62% in that time frame. Certainly not paid for performance on that one. Absolutely not. And I wanted to touch on the leverage issue that you discussed. So by leverage, you're, you're indicating that the market fears that Occidental is taking on too much debt and swallowing a $55 billion Anadarko in which they're paying for half the equity consideration in cash. Got a quote here from Zoe Sutherland, an analyst at Wood McKenzie, saying, financially, the deal would be a big stretch for Occidental. A potential transaction would be materially increase the company's leverage ratios and stretch its balance sheet. Another analyst here from Mizuho wrote, we think the bid is a very bad idea. So does pretty much absolutely everyone we talk to. So Occidental shareholders aren't too keen on it. Net result, Anadarko trading at 73 bucks a share. Occidental's bid was 76, Chevron 65, and these move around because a large portion of these considerations are in stock. But clearly, the market pricing in a bid quite a bit above Chevron's price 
We'll see what Chevron does here and we'll monitor that situation, but certainly an interesting takeover battle brewing and could be quite exciting for Anadarko shareholders specifically. Yeah, and in terms of those Anadarko shareholders, one shareholder that is in favor of the Occidental bid is actually D.E. Shaw, which is, which is quite interesting. Um, but as well, just some other notes on Chevron is that insiders are saying that they're unlikely to raise their offer, but you can't really take that quite at face value as that could just be part of no negotiation. Yeah, the key thing in a hostile takeover battle is the value of the assets. If they're very marquee and rare assets that won't come up for sale again, which I kind of see the Permian assets that Anadarko owns being in this situation, then you could see both companies pretty keen to get their hands on it. So I don't necessarily see Chevron backing down. The other thing is if they do choose to back down, they do it quickly. And there have been a number of days since Occidental re released its uh, proposal. And uh, touching on D.E. Shaw, now D.E. Shaw is a very large hedge fund. They established a stake in Anadarko and they're pushing for a sale process there to attract the highest bid possible. So we'll see how that one plays out. Bank of Canada holds rates steady this week at 1.75% in line with what the market expected. What was unexpected is that they downgraded their forecast of GDP growth for the year from 1.7% to 1.2%. In the first quarter, they believe GDP grew by only 0.3%, which is uh, not very good, especially in the face of US GDP numbers, which we will get to. US grew at 3.2% annualized. So Canada's 0.3% in Q1 is not looking impressive versus the US. As a reminder, what the Bank of Canada has done uh, since mid-2017, they have hiked their benchmark rate five times, and it lies at 1.75%. Couple things. Number one is uh, in the oil and gas sector that has really affected the economy and the path of interest rates at the Bank of Canada. Wanted to mention that investment in the oil and gas sector in 2019 will be 20% lower than it was just two years ago. And looking at the investment two years ago, that had already dropped 50% from 2014. So a significant decrease in uh, oil and gas sector investment, which is the largest portion of the Canadian economy, effectively. Another comment on housing, showing early signs that it may be stabilizing, particularly around Toronto. However, the Bank of Canada did acknowledge that there could be more downside in the Vancouver area and Alberta. Another interesting tidbit, within their monetary policy report is the BOC lowered its estimate of the neutral rate from 2.5 to 3.5% to 2.25 to 3.25%. So we had previously discussed the neutral rate and that is a rate in which the Bank of Canada, their benchmark rate, they believe is not stimulative to the economy. Clearly we're lower than that, but the lower that they take their neutral rate the less likely they are to conduct future rate hikes. Uh, talking about the Canadian dollar on the back of this news, which was obviously negative with the downgrade in uh, GDP, the loony fell to a four month low as the market priced in an increasing chance of rate cut. And rate cuts have been a thing that we've really been on the past couple of months here, really thinking that that is the path that the Bank of Canada increasingly looks like it's going to take. What are your thoughts on this? 
Yeah, so one thing that I did want to point out is that, as we all know, Canada is an export-dependent country. We, we rely on our, our exports to provide a lot of our growth. And so trade uncertainty is actually having an outsized impact on these export-dependent countries. So not only is Canada struggling with this, but actually South Korea, another export-dependent country, saw its largest GDP contraction in a decade of 0.3%. So this isn't just specific to Canada, but specific to Canada is that one of the one of the points that Polo's uh, in in his notes mentioned for the slowdown in growth rate was the Ontario Premier Doug Ford's budget austerity. This seems like a little bit of a political response by the by the Bank of Canada. Now, do you do you see this as common for for the BOC governor to talk fiscal policy? It happens rarely, and I don't think he's taking a political shot here. He's just trying to add color and perhaps make excuses for their poor forecasting ability, which can be expected because they really aren't generally too accurate. And if I were to put stock in someone's forecast, either the Bank of Canada's or the markets, I'd choose the markets forecast every time. It's just more accurate, more up to date, and it's the collective insights of thousands of economists, analysts, and traders pricing these uh, in the market intraday, every day. And so I believe that collective wisdom generally forecasts uh, much better than the economists at the Bank of Canada do, or any central bank for that matter. Contrasting those Canadian GDP numbers, uh, we have US Q1 GDP, which actually beat expectations. 3.2% annualized versus, I believe, 2.2% as expected by analysts on a consensus basis. But digging into this 3.2% number, the bursting growth was really driven by a smaller trade deficit and the largest accumulation of unsold merchandise since 2015, which are viewed as temporary boosters to the GDP figure. Now, if we exclude trade inventories and government spending, which are seen as temporary, the economy actually grew at only 1.3% in the first quarter. So it's important to make that distinction. The headline number seems really good. It's above Donald Trump's 3% growth target, but it just seems pretty unsustainable because growth isn't coming from the right areas. That being said, clearly no recession as the market was pricing in in Q4. So that's very positive news. Economists expect GDP growth to slow this year, forecasting about 2.5%. Now this is below Trump's 3% annual target. Got a couple quotes here, one from a bear, one from a bull. Our first bearish quote from David Rosenberg. He says, this was a low quality GDP report, all one-offs, lower imports, higher inventories, and Pentagon spending. Real final private sales, a puny 1.3%, removing more lipstick from this pig, shows cyclically adjusted GDP contracting at a 2% annual rate, deepest decline in nearly a decade. So Rosenberg, the bear, views GDP on an adjusted basis as actually contracting, which is pretty, uh, pretty significant. It's a pretty big call from him. Now, on the bullish side, we have the National Economic Council Director, Larry Kudlow, calling the Q1 report a blowout number. President Trump's policies are rebuilding the economy and actually the prosperity cycle we're in is gaining momentum, not losing it, he said. 
Bottom line, the U.S. economy has been on a roll. This marks 10 years of expansion in July, which will be the longest on record. What are your thoughts on these numbers? Yeah, so I mentioned how the Canadian economy is largely driven by exports, whereas the U.S. economy is largely, the largest part of the U.S. economy is consumer spending. Um, And this actually rose above uh, consensus forecasts at 1.2% growth at 1.2% growth rate, which is interesting. But similar to Rosenberg's comments on the quality of uh, of the forecast, this quarter also has a quirk where, because of the government shutdown, analysts actually didn't have access to some of the consumer spending data that they normally would factor into their estimates, which would give question to the overall quality of the data that they were that they were using to make their estimates. So that's another interesting aspect of this of this read. Yeah, another dynamic to keep in mind is there is an ongoing trade war, specifically between the US and China. So that will negatively affect some of these GDP growth numbers. And speaking of which, they do have further future upside if those two countries can seem to settle their differences, which hopefully they can over the next number of months. But it's certainly been something we've been watching and something we've been waiting for. Put out a blog post this week entitled Replicating Private Equity with Liquid Public Securities. Now, what we talk about in this blog post was private equity and how to create an investment strategy using publicly traded stocks to effectively give you the same returns that you can get in private equity. Touching on private equity, what it is, it's a very large multi-trillion dollar industry of largely something called leverage buyouts, where a private equity firm will buy out a company, a lot of the times it's a public company, take them private, utilizing a significant amount of debt. When I mentioned significant, I believe private equity leverage buyouts tend to happen north of a 6.2 times net debt to EBITDA, so a significant leverage ratio that is over three times higher than the average of the S&P 500 company. But utilizing that leverage, and we get into what drives private equity returns in this piece, is that um, they have had substantial returns, market beating returns over its history. And so from that performance, they have raised $3 trillion from investors since 2012. Contrast this to the active mutual fund space. Now, active mutual funds have lost $1 trillion in investors over the past four years. So you see this divergence between active mutual funds and active private equity, where investors are taking money out of mutual funds and then allocating more to private equity. And demand for private equity is so insatiable such that private equity firms now have 1.2 trillion of dry powder. That is excess capital that hasn't found its way into investments at this point. We highlighted a study that Harvard Business School did in a methodology to replicate private equity returns utilizing public securities. I'll quote, they say, a passive portfolio of small, low EBITDA And by EBITDA, I mean earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization. It's a commonly used measure of cash flow. So low EBITDA multiple stocks with modest amounts of leverage and hold to maturity counting of net asset value produces an unconditional return distribution that is highly consistent with that of the pre-fee aggregate private equity index. So there you have it. What we did in our blog post is we created a multi-factor model to replicate 
private equity returns using some of the data from the Harvard study, what we found and what our simulations showed is that you can replicate private equity with liquid public securities by building a three-factor model. Number one is size, the first factor. So you select a universe of small and mid-cap stocks. Why? Well, because small and mid-cap stocks have historically outperformed the market. Number two, value. So you want to select top decile value stocks on EBITDA to EV. Now, this is a valuation measure. Effectively, it's the cheapest 10% of stocks in the market. Why do you do this? Well, because historically, low valuation stocks have outperformed the market. And lastly, private equity secret sauce really is leverage. So you want to apply a modest amount of leverage to the portfolio because leverage amplifies returns. Going through some of the simulations we ran uh, on, on our North American basket of stocks since 2007, so over the past dozen years, our private equity replication portfolio unlevered return 144% or 8.8% annualized. Now the Prequin buyout index, which aggregates private equity fund returns on a quarterly basis, it returned 166% or 9.5% annualized. However, one thing that I wanted to note the difference between our simulated private equity replication portfolio and the Prequin buyout index is that LBO or leveraged buyout companies typically have six-fold the amount of debt or leverage that our private equity replication portfolio has. So a significantly higher risk portfolio. Now we ran another simulation in which we leveraged our private equity replication portfolio 130% and then hedged off 30% by shorting 30% in S&P 500 futures. This resulted in a 220% return for the leveraged private equity replication portfolio. And this is 11.4% annualized, which beat the Prequin Bio Index by nearly 2% per year. So there you have it. We've created a, a pretty cool model to replicate private equity, but this is with securities that offer you intraday liquidity. Not just that, but you can do this at a significantly lower fee than private equity. Another thing I chat about in the blog post is many like to point towards either operational improvements or the so-called illiquidity premium as to where private equity results and outperformance come from. But we clearly show that that is not the case and the results come from those three factors that we discussed, that being size, value, and leverage. Do you have any comments on this post? Yeah, absolutely. And in, so in terms of the rationale for those si for size, leverage, and value is that these factors actually make a lot of economic sense as well, since private equity funds historically, such as KKR and Bain, some of the uh, most popular PE funds, uh, had their best years in the 1970s and 80s when it was relatively less competitive and they were doing mid-market deals. So they were doing smaller deals, less competition, so a, uh, a valuation that was typically lower yeah, um, and by and valuation, you're talking four to six times EBITDA in terms of enterprise value or takeover value of the business where you're buying it at four to six times its cash flow. And you look at the average leverage buyout these days, I believe the multiple is at an all-time high at roughly 11 times EBITDA. So you've seen valuations double. And obviously, the amount of equity increase much more than that, just given the leverage on these deals. 
Absolutely. And doing a, doing a deal at, you know, 11 times is very different um, from doing a deal at five or six times. Yeah, exactly. With the amount of leverage, you're seeing a large amount of leverage buyouts being done at six to seven times debt to EBITDA inclusive of a number of adjustments. So after adjustments, many could be north of seven times, but you look in the heyday of private equity in the, in the 80s and 90s, and they're getting total deals done far less than six times EBITDA. So it's a pretty, you know, pretty significant difference. And perhaps the best days of private equity are behind them. What do you think? Yeah, that's a, that's a definite possibility. I mean, to counter that, perhaps it is just cyclical where the next recession that comes across, perhaps deal deal sizes and um, and multiples will revert to more of a historical norm. Yeah, there's just so much capital chasing these opportunities. Pension funds really desperate for higher returns than the market. I should note that one of the largest PE shops out there is in the midst of raising the largest leveraged buyout fund ever, and their CEO said. The raising of the money was so easy, it was akin to a, quote, out-of-body experience. And so there you have it, when things like that happen, and it typically doesn't end well. That's all I got to say about that. So there you have it, folks. Episode 11 of the Absolute Return Podcast. You can hear more at absolutereturnpodcast.com. We'll chat to you again in another week. Feel free to leave us some questions, leave us some ratings on iTunes, and we'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty expressed or implied is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.